come on a journey with a cinephile. Wake up, sucker. We're thieves and we're bad guys. That's exactly what we are. To episode 87 of Journey with a Cinephile, a horror movie podcast. As always, I am your tour guide here of David Garrett Jr., recording out of Columbus, Ohio. And on this episode is going to be my Odyssey Through the Ones, number 14. As I have for you, Werewolves Within is the 2021 release. That'll be the first featured review. And then I also paired it up with a movie that doesn't necessarily have the same thing that I was saying, but is kind of an interesting double feature with, from 1941, I have The Monster and the Girl. Also included on this episode, I have many reviews of Troll Hunter, Big Bad Wolves, Rigor Mortis, Insidious Chapter 2, only Lovers Left Alive, and Hatchet 2. Now, all of those ones, for the most part, are part of the Summer Challenge series. I'm trying to, you know, work my way through 2013. I also kind of snuck a one in there as well because I had never seen it before and I needed to see it before another one. I'll get into that in the mini-reviews, but I really think that's all I need to get you up to speed with here. So what I'm going to go ahead and do is do my monthly review. So for my monthly review here for the month of June, I have watched 33 total films, <laughs> 32 of them are horror films, 6 of those are 2021 releases, and this is a 96.97% in horror, which is one of my highest of this year so far. So the horror movies that I watched this month in June are Open Your Eyes, Prana 3D, The Silence of the Lambs, The Amusement Park, Bedeviled, Life Force, Seder, The Conjuring, The Devil Made Me Do It, I Saw the Devil, We Need to Talk About Kevin, The Black Cat from 1941, The Skin I Live In, the Tall Man, The Greasy Strangler, Sun, Invisible Ghost, Stakeland, Sensor, Dream Home, Tucker and Dale vs. Evil, Spooks Run Wild, Frozen, Julia's Eyes, The Last Exorcism, The Crazies, The Last Circus, The Monster and the Girl, Troll Hunter, Werewolves Within, Big Bad Wolves, Rigor Mortis, and the last one was Insidious Chapter 2. Eleven countries were represented in June with United States, Canada, South Korea, United Kingdom, Spain, France, Ireland, Hong Kong, Mexico, Norway, and Israel. Of those, the 2021 watches were Open Your Eyes, Seder, The Conjuring, The Devil Made Me Do It, Sun, Censor, and Werewolves Within. 
The oldest watches that I have are a four-way tie between the Black Cat, Invisible Ghost, Spooks Run Wild, and the Monster and the Girl, all from 1941. The average year was actually up with 2003. The highest rated film that I watched is The Silence of the Lambs, which was a 10 out of 10. The lowest rated that I watched was Spooks Run Wild with a 5 out of 10. The average rating is 7.5. And then not on this feed are Life Force, which is on Movie Club Challenge over on the podcast Under the Stairs. That episode is already out if you wanted to give that a listen. And then I also have The Greasy Strangler, which is on this feed, but it's a side quest podcast episode with Jake. And then for my yearly totals, I've watched 29 2021 releases, 158 horror films, 204 total films. The average year is 1997. The average rating is a 7.5, and my percentage of horror is 77.45%. So I think that's all I needed to get you up to speed with on that. So what I'm going to do is get you over to a very brief break before I get into those mini reviews. And I hope you enjoy coming on this journey with me. And for my first mini review of this week, is going to be a very brief one because I've actually covered it on the show previously, but the movie is Troll Hunter. This went by the original title of Troll Jurgener, and this is written and directed by Andre Overdahl. It stars Otto Jesperson, Robert Stoltenberg, and Knut Nurum. This is a found footage film, I want to point that out first, but it's also a drama, fantasy, horror, sci-fi thriller that is out of Norway. This is currently sitting on a... 7.0 7.0 on IMDb and a 3.4 on Letterboxd, with the synopsis being a group of students investigate a series of mysterious bear killings, but learn that there are much more dangerous things going on. They start to follow a mysterious hunter, learning that he is actually a troll hunter. So as I said before, like this is a movie that I saw the case of family video. I thought it might be cheesy, but I ended up watching it after I heard people on podcasts saying how good this actually was. I watched this back on episode number... 58 as it was part of like my year-end wintry show that I did back in, you know, in December. So I'm also now giving this a second viewing as part of the Summer Challenge series for the 2010s. But what I really like about this is that it takes such a adult and serious look at trolls and making them you know be grounded in reality as you can for these mythical type creatures. I love there's a lot of science behind it where like a veterinarian is talking about you know why the sunlight will kill them or things of this nature. And I really think that Jesperson does such a great job is that he's such a dry humor and he doesn't find any sort of funny thing. So when he's taking around these you know, documentary film crew that are actually students at Volta College, that no matter what they kind of like throw at him, he's just very stern and serious with his responses back to them. I do think some of the CGI doesn't necessarily hold up, but I'm a little bit more forgiving, especially because this is found footage where the camera is a bit shaky. I think there's only like once or twice where I thought that the CGI didn't necessarily hold up. I think I said in my original review that this also feels kind of like the Norwegian version of Cloverfield. And I mean, I just think that the movie builds in such a way. Overdahl did such a good job with the writing where there'll be little things that'll be dropped in a conversation or like just things you hear on the news that'll actually come into play later on in the movie. I think that's really kind of expertly done. I just think this movie is just so well done overall and... You know, kind of for all the reasons I've already just said. So actually, after the second viewing for this movie, my ratings actually come up for Troll Hunter that I was originally sitting at an 8. I'm now sitting at an 8.5 for this movie out of 10. And I would definitely recommend seeing this. 
I do believe there might be a dub version. I didn't really confirm it just because I usually watch movies in their original language and just watch it with subtitles on. But I do kind of want to throw that warning up there. But I definitely would say that if you like found footage or if you're kind of interested in some of the things that I've already kind of said about this movie, definitely give this one a go. And then I also got to watch Big Bad Wolves. This is from 2013. This is written and directed by Aaron Cashales and Navat Papu Shadu. And then this stars Lore Ashkazinzi, Rotem Kinnan, and Tazahi Grad. Now, if I pronounce any of those names incorrectly, I do apologize for that. But this is a drama horror thriller film that is from Israel that is currently sitting on a... 6.8 on IMDb and a 3.4 on Letterboxd, with the synopsis being after a little girl is brutally murdered, a suspect avoids arrest due to lack of evidence. Working separately, her father and a cop decide to do something about it. So this is another movie that I heard about thanks to podcasts. My initial reaction was that this was potentially going to be a werewolf movie due to the title. Now I did come into this without reading the synopsis and just knowing that it was selected as part of the podcast Under the Stairs Summer Challenge series for the 2010s. So where I want to start is the idea of this movie and my initial impressions. I've relayed that I thought this could be a werewolf movie. Instead, we're getting a play on fairy tales like the Three Little Pigs. Dor is is referred to as a wolf when Giddy is reading the details of the case like a fable. Now, Dor is portrayed by Keenan, and then Giddy is portrayed by Grodd, where we also have Mickey, who is Ashkenazi. Again, sorry if I mispronounce any of those. So there also seems to be a dual meaning here is that both Giddy and Mickey hunt Dor. They're convinced that he's the one behind these horrific crimes that are happening to these little girls. And one of the strongest parts of the movie is that it leaves us questioning things until the end before we get the answers. Now, since this movie is really surrounding these three main characters, that's where I want to first kind of start to delve into here. Giddy is interesting to me. We briefly meet him at the crime scene where he loses it when his daughter was found. So he's a broken man. We learn later that he's harboring more than just guilt about what happened to his daughter. He was neglectful the day that she was taken. His introduction is at the point where he's broken most that her body has been found, but he doesn't know where the head is as the body has been decapitated and that has been taken almost as like a trophy, or at least that's what it's assumed. Giddy is a dangerous man that he's lost his daughter and is separated from his wife. All he has left is getting his revenge. It could be misguided though because we never know for sure if Dor is the man that we're actually looking for. Now, Grodd's performance here is great as well, by the way. Then I'll shift this over to Mickey. He's a cop that seems like he likes to skirt things by not necessarily doing everything by the book. It is interesting to watch this movie for the first time with 2021 eyes with all of the police brutality that's been going on in the country of the United States. I think we have a bit of social commentary here about that. His boss of Tisvika doesn't want to suspend Mickey, but he has to due to pressure from above. They're also trying to avoid scandal. Now, much like Giddy, I'm questioning the whole way if they have the right man or not. We never get the evidence to show us while things are going on, and it isn't until the end that we kind of get closure. We're just trying to see the lengths that these two will go to get the confession. This is also a great performance here by Ash Kanzi. Now, the last character I really want to deep dive into would be Dor. When I first saw him getting beat up, I thought this was done by gangsters. Now, it turns out to be police officers, which is even worse. The movie really makes you feel sorry for him from the beginning, since we're not given any of the evidence as to why they think he did it. We get to see his students passing notes making fun of him, 
inappropriate things are written on exams about him being laid off from work and even his girlfriend or ex-wife or whatever she is not letting him see his daughter i think keenan steals the show here he is tied up and tortured throughout but despite what he goes through he maintains his innocence so that should be enough for the story here so i'll shift this over to the acting with some of the supporting characters later in the movie we get to meet giddy's dad of yoram who is portrayed by dovelli glickman he is forced there by his wife and Giddy's mother, but there's an interesting reveal here with him that I wasn't expecting, and this is another good performance. I also liked Menashi Noy, Devere Benedict, and the rest of the cast really just kind of rounds us out for support of our three stars. So next would be the effects. I think this is handled well and in an interesting way. Early we see that Duar gets smacked around. Once he is taken to Giddy's, the real torture begins. We see things like him being cut, burned, fingers broken, and nails pulled off. It would appear to me that most of this was done practical. The only thing that probably wasn't was the burn that we see. I was impressed with the realism across the board here, and I'll even be honest, it made me cringe a few times. So I have to say, this is shot well and the cinematography looks good. So then in conclusion here, I wasn't sure what I was going to be getting with this movie, but I enjoyed it. There's an interesting idea here, is Dor guilty of this crime that these two men think? It is an interesting concept to not give us any of the evidence to make our decisions until late in the movie. This is really driven by the acting of our stars of Grad, Ozkensky, and Cannon. They all do good with the rest of the cast rounding this out in support. The effects help with the realism and the movie is shot well. The soundtrack also has an interesting sound that fit the movie and I rather enjoyed it on top of that. This isn't a movie for everyone. You have to be able to handle some graphic violence but if you can get past that I would recommend it. Now, I did watch this with the native language of Hebrew and, you know, with subtitles on. I did see that there is a dub version on the DVD that I have as a heads up as well. For me, though, this is a good movie overall. And for Big Bad Wolves, I come in here with an 8 out of 10. And then I also got to watch this week uh, Rigor Mortis, which goes by the original title of Guing Si. This is from Juno Mack as the director, who also helped come up with the screenplay with Philip Yong, Lei Yin Luang. And then this stars Sin Ho Chin, Kara Wa, and Wee Ching Pa. This is an action horror film that is from Hong Kong. It is currently sitting on a 6.3 on IMDb and a 3.2 on Letterboxd. With the synopsis being a public housing tenement is plunged into a dark storm of supernatural chaos. So this is a movie that I'd never heard of before. It popped up on the list of movies for 2013 over on the podcast Under the Stairs for their Summer Challenge series, and I sought it out. This is another one that I didn't read the synopsis ahead of seeing it and just came in blind. So I'm not very versed when it comes to some of the lore that this movie is using here as this is from Hong Kong, like I said. So we're getting a lot of like their type of mythology, but I do know something. So I will say that one of the bigger issues here is this movie is designed, I feel like, for those that are familiar with this lore and they just get into it. I can't hold this against the movie too much since it is foreign and isn't necessarily for an American audience. What does work, though, is that it settles in and I got caught up to where they're getting at here. So with that out of the way, I want to start with the setting. We are in this rundown apartment building. I didn't pick up that it was public housing until seeing the synopsis. That does make a whole lot more sense to the state of it and why the people are struggling. It makes for a creepy location as well because it has fallen into disrepair. Going a bit farther, it almost feels like this place could be a gate of hell from something that gets introduced later in the movie. And that is something that really works for me especially because I love, you know, Fulci's Gates of Hell trilogy. I could be wrong there, but it does feel like that. Now, if that isn't the case, it just has a lot of tragedy forcing spirits to be trapped in this building. 
So next, let me get to the supernatural elements. We are dealing with a few different ghosts in this movie, and I did see a bit of trivia on IMDb that there are this lore in this from this like area and everything like that. So that's where I'm kind of getting at that there is probably built-in mythology that people already know. But this movie does well in showing the history of why people are trapped here. Like we have the twins, that there was something quite horrific there. This movie does have an Asian vampire in it as well. What I love is that I've learned from some older movies that in their lore, vampires hop. We get that in this movie, which is interesting for sure. Then we have a character of Gao who is using black magic. Now, he is told by at least two characters that he shouldn't, and he's messing around with things that he doesn't necessarily know, so it really is his fault where things end up. Now, I'll be honest here, though. There is a reveal at the end that I wasn't the biggest fan of, and it's kind of a trope that I just feel like it's overused and it doesn't necessarily need to be done. And what we end up getting here with it is a bit problematic for everything that we got prior to that. So moving away from the story, I'll go next to the acting. I did find it interesting to see that Chin is playing himself here. He does well, but what is interesting is that he's depressed. Since I don't believe we ever learn what happened to his family, I like that he becomes a reluctant hero in that he is here for, you know, he's down on his luck and everything like that. And when things are happening around him, he decides to step up. And it almost seems like a way to redeem himself as well. Now, why is Solid in her role as well? They don't give her a lot of depth, though, to be honest. And then we have Paul, along with the person who plays her husband in this movie, of Richard Ning. They play well off each other, and where they end up works for me. The other real star here is that of Anthony Chan. He has this good guy mentality here who is doing what he can for those that live in this building. He also has knowledge of the supernatural, so when that comes into play, he you know is there for it, as he almost feels like a guardian, to be honest. Other than that, I thought that Hoi Peng Lo and Fat Chong, among the other cast, really rounded this out for what was needed. Now, since this movie has supernatural elements, let's go to the effects. Overall, I'm more positive here. I think we get some good blood and gore effects when needed. Some of the attack scenes can be brutal, which worked for me. There is some CGI that doesn't necessarily hold up all that well. Thankfully, there doesn't seem to be a whole lot of that, though. And I also thought the cinematography was well done and the movie looks great. And it was impressive as to where things, you know, as it goes on, as we get more of an ethereal feel as the supernatural elements ramp up. So in conclusion here, this movie is one that I'd never heard of, but I'm glad that I got the chance to check out. It has lore that I'm not overly familiar with, and it's interesting to see, and it's something that I'm now interested to learn more about now that you know I've seen this, and to see if it might help with a subsequent viewing, because I definitely would check this out again. The acting here is good. The effects for the most part are as well, with just some slight issues with the CGI. Cinematography is well done. I think the soundtrack fits with building a creepy vibe. This movie is a bit slow in the beginning, but it does pull me in. So be warned, this is from Hong Kong, like I've said. So I did have to watch it with subtitles on. There did seem to be a dub version on the DVD, so if you prefer that. For me, though, this is an above-average movie. It is lacking a bit for me to go fully into it and to go higher, but I think fleshing out a bit more could have sent this you know, to a bit higher rating for me and you know, up into the next category. So my rating here for Rigamortis is going to be a 7 out of 10. And then also I have for you Insidious Chapter 2. This is from 2013. This is directed by James Wan, who came up with the story. And then Lee Winnell uh, had the characters were created by him. This stars Patrick Wilson, Rose Byrne, and Barbara Hershey. This is a horror mystery thriller film that is a co-production between the United States and Canada. It is currently sitting on a 6.6 on IMDb and a... 2.9 on Letterboxd, with the synopsis being the Lamberts believe that they have defeated the spirits that have haunted their family. 
but they soon discover that evil is not beaten so easily. So this is a film that I was excited to check out because the first time that I saw it, I was a little bit disappointed in it. But when I got into podcasting, a lot of people seem to, you know, be, you know, higher than I was on this. And I'd only seen it that one time since I picked it up on DVD. I did now, you know, give it a second viewing as part of the Summer Challenge series over on the podcast Under the Stairs, which I feel like I'm a broken record about. But this popped up on the list for 2013. And Jamie and I also watched this together as she watched the original one and, you know, it freaked her out. So I figured it'd be a fun one to kind of continue on the story with her. Now, what I do want to start off with, I love the first one a lot. I didn't know much about it and had low expectations, so it blew me away. And it held up after that second viewing. This one had some big shoes to fill. What works is that they took what the original did and expanded on it. It ties in things that happened in the first and shows you more of it, which I thought was pretty interesting and was a good idea to do. This one also gives more information to Josh as a boy and explains what is happening to him now. This is where I want to delve a bit deeper first. We get to see that Elise says in the beginning when she shows up in the previous movie. Josh doesn't remember as memories were repressed to help him. We see that the bride in black wanted to take him over back then, and we get to learn why. Things started to come back to me as this movie went on, and it makes it horrific. I brought this up to Jamie, and she didn't see the correlation, but the movie does well in explaining it, so by the time that was all done, it made a whole lot more sense to her. I also like how they incorporate this other ghost that is attacking Renee and Callie, you know, the mother and the baby. The investigation here works, but Jamie brought up a good point. There is a time where they go to the hospital that Lorraine, who is the mother of Josh, that she used to work at, and there's still medical records there. This wouldn't happen, and they still wouldn't be there. It doesn't ruin the movie, but it is an issue for me, as it's a plot hole. Now, to shift gears here, this movie does something with time that I'm a sucker for. I'm surprised I didn't like this movie more the first time around, as there's something that really ticks boxes for me here. While in the further, time doesn't move linear, and it is more of a flat circle. We are able to see events from when Josh was a kid and the truth of what he said as well as who he was talking to. We also get to see a different side of events in the first movie. Now some of this really works where other parts I just feel like they're just trying to establish things, but it is still interesting regardless. Now I do need to move this to the acting. We get a really good performance here from Wilson. There is this normal version of him that is trapped in the further and then there is this evil version in the real world. I like to see them play with the duality of this character. Burn is good along with Hershey. They so badly want to help their family and do whatever they can. Now, Shay is good as well. I'm just glad she got cast in this role as this feels like her iconic role for her. And, you know, if it hadn't come along, she might not be the household name that she is now. For at least horror fans. Simpkins, Steve Coulter, Lee Winnell, Angus Sampson, and the rest of the cast do round this out for what was needed in support. I also wanted to give credit here to... Bouchetti and Fitzpatrick along with those playing ghosts they were all effective with the scares now something else that was effective was the effects I like the look of the further it is like our world just black and there's mist it is similar to purgatory or just where you go until you move on now many times souls don't I like that it isn't bound to the rules of the real world I like the look of the ghosts the movie does rely on jump scares and I will say that they are pretty well done what is more impressive for me is the framing and cinematography. It is pretty top-notch, actually, especially when we see something in the background or when someone walks past and an entity will disappear. This makes me uncomfortable in such a good way. So then finally, I want to go over the soundtrack here, and I didn't really remember it from the first time, but it gives us more of the same from the original. This 
isn't as strong though we do get more of the stringed instruments which i'm assuming is a violin it helps with building the atmosphere that going for and building up the tension that is needed this is well done for sure so then in conclusion here i'm glad that i gave this a second viewing this is better than i remembered and it is taking what was done in the original and then building on it as well as expanding on those ideas it is coupled with good acting along with framing cinematography and a solid soundtrack this movie might rely a bit too much on jump scares but they are effective as well now I've come up for the previous time that I've seen this. I would recommend give this a viewing if you like the original as this is just a continuation of that story. So for me, this is a good movie. So for Insidious Chapter 2, I'm coming in with an 8 out of 10 this time around. And then I also got to watch Only Lovers Left Alive. This is from 2013. This is written and directed by Jim Jarmusch. And it looks like the French version adaptation was done by Marion Besset. This stars Tilda Swinton, Tom Hiddleston, and Mia Wasikowska. This is a comedy, drama, fantasy, horror, romance film that is a co-production amongst the United Kingdom, Germany, Greece, and France. This is currently sitting on a 7.3 on IMDb and a 3.8 on Letterboxd. With the synopsis being a depressed musician reunites with his lover, their romance, which has already endured several centuries, is disrupted by the arrival of her uncontrollable younger sister. So this is a movie that I had never heard of until going to see another of the writer-director here of Jarmusch's films of The Dead Don't Die. This local podcast got to show that movie early, and for their recording, they brought up this movie as a list. I'm not really sure what the list was now offhand, but this one did appear on there. And it went on my list of movies to check out, and I'm now finally getting the chance, thanks to the podcast Under the Stairs Summer Challenge series, as this came up on the 2013 list. Where I want to start is that this movie doesn't have the most complex story. This is more about the rich lore that Jarmusch has come up with and the depths of the characters. It is also interesting that I saw The Dead Don't Die Before seeing this movie, as they have a completely different tone, but they have that unique style that Jarmusch, you know, has. So where I want to start would be the character of Adam. Now it appears that he is a musician that puts out music, but he doesn't want the fame that comes with it. He appears to be great at what he does. Now Adam is portrayed by Hiddleston, then we have Ian who is portrayed by the late Anton Yelchin. Now he's tasked with bringing different things that Adam needs, but he's also putting out false information to keep people off his trail. This makes a lot of sense though as Adam being a vampire. If he becomes famous, it could blow his cover. It would also lead people to asking questions. He is stuck in the past as well. Many of the instruments that he has being brought to him are quite old. And when he visits a Dr. Watson, who is portrayed by Jeffrey Wright, now he's dressed up as a doctor to keep a cover. And he also has a stethoscope from the 1960s, which Dr. Watson points out. Now, there's also a lot of old like music equipment. And his setup to talk to Eve is you know older than what she's dealing with. And Eve is portrayed by Swinton. Adam is also living in a lonely, rundown part of Detroit where he's only one of few people that are in the area, and he is stuck in the past and considering killing himself. It is even more depressing look here at being a vampire. Now moving to his maid of Eve, she enjoys life a bit more. Where Adam buries himself in music, she does this with literature. She embraces the modern world though, as she has an iPhone. Eve goes out into the night and is around people. This includes meeting with Christopher Marlowe, who is portrayed by John Hurt. Now they go meet in public places along with a almost familiar of Belal. Now she is much more forgiving of her younger sister of Ava who is portrayed by Wachowska where it upsets Adam quite a bit with how Ava acts. 
It also makes sense that Adam and Eve are a couple, which I enjoy the reference of the Bible there. Now, from what I think I should shift over to would be the lore. I love that they're incorporating different famous people throughout history into this. Christopher is supposedly the one who wrote Hamlet, and I'm assuming all of the works that William Shakespeare takes credit for. This is even better is that there is a conspiracy theory out there that someone else did all these writings and that Shakespeare is just the one that is credited. Adam was friendly with many different famous scientific minds of the past, including Tesla. And we get this really kind of interesting thing where we see that his apartment or his house that he's living in is off the electrical grid and that he has this thing that Tesla created. And it's almost pointing out how bad humanity is, you know, behind the times and how unintelligent that we are, that if we actually worked with what Tesla had developed, our electrical grid would be much more efficient and much better. With how they're treated, and it contributes to the hatred for humanity that these vampires refer to us humans as zombies. There's even more of this, but I love the idea that they're playing with here that vampires have been around for centuries, influencing those of greatness. So then to shift this slightly, I like that vampirism here is looked at more of an addiction. Now this isn't the first movie that I've seen do this, but there is a big worry here about drinking contaminated blood. We see what happens later if they do ingest this, and I thought this was a good move. Ava is scolded for drinking of someone in the wild because they don't know if it will make her sick or not. Christopher can get good clean blood from a French doctor that is, you know, the good stuff. And this is very similar to Adam with what he does with Dr. Watson here. When they drink, they go into a euphoric state, almost like people on drugs. And I thought this was a good realistic take here. So next I think I should go to the acting. We have a great cast here all around. Swinton is such an odd person, but I think she takes on such great roles. Even if the movie isn't great, she brings such a solid performance. This role is no different. We get a younger Hiddleston here before he took off with the Avengers movies. I thought he was solid as our lead. And I really like the roles of Yelchin, Waskakowska, Wright and Hurt. All of them and the rest of the cast just really rounded this out for what was needed. Then it'd be the cinematography. I thought it was shot brilliantly. Vampires tend to be shown as beautiful, and we really aren't getting that here necessarily. They look like normal people just a bit off, and I do like that they're wearing clothes that are like hundreds of years old, and it's kind of an interesting look here. Now, where Adam is living in a rundown but high-tech in some sense house, I just think how it's framed and shot really helps to convey this, and there's mimicking of records with some of the spinning shots of camera movement. Then as for the effects, we don't get a lot of them, but what we do look good, and it would appear to me that they're done practical and the use of some interesting things in the camera effects as well. So in conclusion here, this is an interesting art house vampire film. I really like the idea of vampirism being an addiction, but this doesn't go gritty with it. We are seeing how Adam and Eve live two different kinds of lives. They really do love each other though. And then the acting is great across the board. The lore is rich, and I really enjoyed that. I think the cinematography is well done along with the effects. The soundtrack also helps to fit the vibe of the scene, and it's just a bit different sounding, which stood out to me. Overall, I can't recommend this movie to everybody just because it is art house, but I do think this is worth a viewing, even though what I said here really has to interest you, you know, for sure in order to come, you know, check this out, because I don't think everybody, like I said, will enjoy this. So my rating here for Only Lovers Left Alive is going to be an 8 out of 10. And then my last mini review this week is going to be Hatchet 2. This came out in 2010. This is written and directed by Adam Green, and it stars Danielle Harris, Kane Hodder, and Tony Todd. This is a action comedy horror thriller that is from the United States. 
It is currently sitting on a 5.5 on IMDb as well as a 2.8 on Letterboxd with the synopsis being Mary Beth escapes the clutches of the Bayou Butcher Victor Crowley and returns to the swamp with an army of hunters and gunmen determined to end Crowley's reign of horror once and for all. So this is a movie that I was intrigued to check out after I finally saw the original. Now, I didn't see these when they came out. Uh, My sister ended up liking them, but... I had watched Hatchet a couple of years ago, so it had been some time in between viewings of that one and then finally seeing this, and I actually watched this one because the third one is part of the Summer Challenge series, so I figured I needed to, you know, see this one before I moved into that third one. So what I'll say is that this doesn't have the deepest story, but just to brace you before coming into this, you know, we're getting a slasher here if you didn't know. It is paying homage to films like Friday the 13th, where the story isn't the most important part. It is more about the kills and the gore. That's not to say that we don't get some good parts of the story, though. So to delve into that a little bit more, I really like that this is taking place in the swamps of Louisiana. They are spooky, they tend to be pretty dense, and also quite remote, so it can be hard to get to them, but it's also difficult to get out as well. I think this idea of having people that live out there uh, keep to themselves, so I can see like a maniac like a Victor Crowley living out there, and Crowley is portrayed by Kane Hodder. You know, they're just out there living off the land, and no one really encounters them unless you come into their territory. What is interesting here is that the wildlife that lives out there, and then you have, you know, Victor living in Honey Island Swamp, which according to this movie is closed to the public to prevent people from going in because, you know, people aren't leaving, so it's just better to kind of sanction it off. Now, Reverend Zombie, who is portrayed by Tony Todd, is breaking the rules by sending tour groups in there as there's a ton of wildlife that is just kind of living unchecked. Now, something else I'll give story here is that writer-director Green, you know, had this a straight continuation. This starts the night of the first movie, and then we are into that next day. Now, Mary Beth, this time around, is portrayed by Danielle Harris, is doing what she can to kill Victor, and she is seeking out those that know about him. So that's a perk for me there, is that we're kind of building on the story that we had originally in the mythology. What I do have an issue with, though, is some of the tropes that the slasher films have or used here. I'll admit, I'm more forgiving of movies that came out 40 years ago just because, like, they didn't necessarily were self-referential yet. Now, Green is paying homage to them, so that's fine, and I will give credit. I just can't because it isn't the most original. Now, I'll move away from the story and go to the acting here, as I do have an issue with movies not getting the same actors or actresses to play the characters in the sequel. I get that at times it's out of their control, but in this case, I'm more forgiving because they did go out and get royalty having Harris here to take on the character of Mary Beth. And I think she's fine. There is one issue that I have, though, is that she cannot do a Louisiana, like, bayou-type Cajun accent. It's bad. And it takes me out of it, to be honest. But I do think that Todd is solid as Reverend Zombie. Hodder does well at playing Thomas and Victor Crowley, with Thomas being the father for flashbacks. And he has such an imposing size that it kind of works out. There is a gag here with Perry Shen that I'll let slide, since he's just literally playing the same character with a different name, just being the twin brother. Tom Holland was okay as Uncle Bob. I'd say that the rest of the cast, having people like R.A. Mihailov, A.J. Bowen, Alexis Kendra, Ed Ackerman, David Foy, Colton Dunn, Rick McCollum, they're all good as like the hunters. And then we have fun cameos here by John Carl Beekler, you know, R.I.P., uh, Riley Vanderbilt playing a young Victor Crowley, which is kind of funny. We have like uncredited cameos by sean ashmore emma bell portraying herself from frozen which is kind of a cool thing adam green here plays a drunkard who is you know throwing up on the sidewalk kind of funny there there's also like legends like lloyd kaufman joe lynch and mike mendez as well 
So then let's go over to the next major part here, which is the effects. What's interesting is that this movie is gory, but not in a way that grosses you out. It's almost over the top to the point where it's comical. I'd say that a majority of the deaths are solid. They went practical from everything that I could tell, which I'm a sucker for. There was just a death right in the beginning that was a little bit too over the top for me. So aside from that, I'd say the cinematography was well done, especially with making the swamp and you know, like the feel of the characters with how deep they are in. It feels like they really are lost. So in conclusion here, this is a solid follow-up in my opinion. I like paying homage to slashers of the past and making this a you know modern, iconic villain in Victor. He is a tragic figure that Hotter plays well. The story makes sense to get this group out in the woods. The acting was good enough for a movie like this and the effects are as well, aside from just a couple spots for me. I think the deaths can be fun. The soundtrack also fits for what was needed, but for me, this is an above average movie. It is worth a viewing if you're a slasher fan and especially if you like the original one as I think this one, you know, kind of just flows right in there. So my rating here for Hatchet 2 is a 7 out of 10. And that's all I'm going to do for mini reviews for this week, so I'm going to get you over to the trailer of my first featured review. Should affect our snowshoes. What? People do that? You know, fun fact, not only is it the oldest, but remains one of the most effective means of traversing the ice. Wow. Yeah, you're going to fit right in at Beaverfield. Everything here is a little... <laughs> questionable. Ranger! The people. The weather, everything. Oh. Ranger, you look like you just seen a corpse. Well, the roads are out, and something's wrong with the generator. Which generator? All of them. Can't get on the internet! Uh, also, there's a dead body under your porch. Holy! Ah! Probably a wolf. What are you, like a wolf detective now, Marcus? Who knows who or when it's gonna kill next. I think we can all agree that it's unsafe outside and there's safety in numbers. Out of curiosity, who is packing? Well, we're having a good old-fashioned sleepover. With guns, though. With guns, yes. Everything about this predator is unorthodox. It's not human. It's one of them. One of what? A lycanthrope. A what? A werewolf. How could it gotten in here? How did it get out? Who says it got out? <laughs> Maybe. I'm a werewolf. Maybe you're a werewolf. Maybe you're a werewolf. You're a werewolf. You're a werewolf. You're a werewolf. Maybe we're all werewolves. Are we really in a Mexican standoff right now? Baby, don't say Mexican. Just standoff. You know, we're probably just gonna head out. We're gonna just pull it. Here, fine. We got it on our own. It's just. Hey, you go ahead, please. Don't spare me. Oh, please don't. Please. Please don't bomb the lock. Me. Oh my goodness, myself. I could have gotten it. And for my first featured review here on this episode is going to be Werewolves Within. This is directed by Josh Rubin. It was written by Mishna Wolf, and it stars Sam Richardson, Milana Ventrub, and George Basil, while also featuring 
Sarah Burns, Michael Chernis, Catherine Curtin, Wayne Duvall, Harvey Guillen, Rebecca Henderson, Cheyenne Jackson, Michaela Watkins, Glenn Flesheler, Patrick M. Walsh, Annie Kruger, and Ritz. This is a comedy horror film that is from the United States. It is currently sitting on a 6.7 on IMDb and a 3.4 on Letterboxd, with our synopsis here being a feature adaptation of the video game where werewolves attack a small town. And then to take it a little bit farther is when a proposed pipeline creates hostilities between residents of a small town, a newly arrived forest ranger must keep the peace after a snowstorm confines the townspeople to an old lodge. So this is a movie that popped up on my radar by going to the Gateway Film Center. Jamie was intrigued to check this one out as it looked funny. Now, horror comedies can be a hit or miss for me, but this one did catch my interest from the little bit that I saw from the trailer. I knew that it would be a murder mystery with a potential monster, you know, in it from the title. And it also has Van Trubb, who is Lily from the AT&T commercials, and I'm just a fan of her in general. As I started following her on social media, and she's doing some things that I definitely agree with, you know, in being an activist. So before I get into the movie itself, let me do some featured notes. The director of Ruben has three credits at this time, with one of them being a short. This is the first one that I've seen, but both of his features have been horror, with the first one being last year's Scare Me. Now, I didn't get a chance to see that one yet, but it is on my list, especially now to go back and check out for sure. Then our writer here of Wolf, this is their only feature. Moving to our cast, we have Richardson as an actor that I know from New Girl. He has been in 23 films. They are mostly comedies where I've seen him in like We're the Millers, Neighbors 2, and like Horrible Bosses 2. Now, he also has a bit part in Promising Young Woman, which I really loved in its own type of way. But this is the only horror film that he's done so far. Then for Van Trubb, we all know her as, as I said, Lily from the AT&T commercials. And it appears that she's also done some voice acting and has 17 acting credits so far. This is the only feature that I've seen her in. And this is the only horror film technically. Now, she was in the all-women you know, Ghostbusters movie along with Richardson. I haven't seen that one yet. I will get around to it. It's just I have such a long list of movies that I'm working through that if I don't have a reason necessarily to kind of move it up, it kind of gets pushed to the back burner. I don't really have an issue with it, you know, being an all-women cast. And the last actor I'm going to look at is Basil. He has 16 credits. This is the only one that I've seen him in so far. Now, he was in a horror short this year called Peanut, but that is it for the genre at this time. So we start this off with a, you know, man standing outside by a tree. He is texting someone, and it appears that he is thinking of cheating on his wife as he takes off his wedding ring. We will learn later that his name is Dave Sherman, and he's portrayed by Walsh. Something attacks him, though, and pulls him into the nearby woods. We see that this happened right outside of his house. We then shift over to Finn Wheeler, who is portrayed by Richardson. He is a park ranger that is reporting to his new assignment. It is a small town and is out in the middle of nowhere, being in the New England area. Finn calls Charlotte, who is portrayed by Kruger. We never actually get to see her. We just get to hear her voice, but she doesn't answer. Now, he leaves her an awkward voicemail. And what we pick up on here is that he isn't assertive and that she might not be all that into him anymore due to, you know, his indecisiveness. Arriving in town, Finn heads to the local inn where he will be staying. It is run by Janine Sherman, portrayed by Curtin. And she's in a debate with Sam Parker, who is portrayed by Duvall. He's trying to convince her to sell as he works for an oil company and they want the land. Now, she disagrees and is happy to see Finn arrive to break up the conversation. So then she ends up taking him up to his room. Also seen at the end is Cicely Moore, portrayed by Ventrub. 
She is a local mail carrier, and she informs him that he has his first piece of mail. It is sent from a Dr. Ellis, who is portrayed by Henderson, and she's also staying at the inn. Now, Finn asks if Cicely will take him to interview the man that the accusation in the letter are aimed at, and she agrees. This gives us a chance to get to know them as they get to know each other, along with the other residents of the town. Now, just to go ahead and run through them, there is a couple that runs a local auto repair place of Marcus, who is portrayed by Basil, and his girlfriend of Gwen, portrayed by Burns. They're a bit raunchy. And then there's also a conservative couple of Pete, who is portrayed by Chernus, and Trisha Anderton, who is portrayed by Watkins, along with their dog of Chachi, portrayed by Ritz. All four of these people want to sell to Parker. Now, Pete does have an issue with keeping his hands to himself and makes Cicely uncomfortable during this kind of opening sequence here. Now, also living in the town is Joaquim, with an M, portrayed by Guillen, and his husband, uh, Devin Wolfson, who is portrayed by Jackson. They struck it big in the tech field and are rich, and they're actually against selling along with Janine and Dr. Ellis. Now, Cicely leads Finn to the path to the final resident that we get to meet of Emerson, portrayed by Fleshler. He's a hunter and trapper who doesn't like outsiders. He threatens Finn, which scares him off, and, you know, returning to Cicely, the two of them go back into town to get some food. Now, they have a natural chemistry that gets ruined with a phone call. This causes her to go quite cold towards him. Now, everything here in town changes that night. There's a bad snowstorm that we kept hearing about, and it ends up hitting. The power goes out, and the road to town is blocked. All of the backup generators are sabotaged by something with a large claw. Chachi is also attacked that night and killed by an animal. This causes Trisha to become quite upset and the entire town gathers at the inn and it is there that an even darker discovery gets made as this group of people tries to survive the night. So that's where I'm going to leave my recap for this movie and where I want to start is that I didn't realize this was based off of a video game. When I saw Ubisoft in the opening credits, I knew that they did like the Assassin's Creed games because I played most of them. Then with a bit of research, it does appear that this is a horror comedy game that was made for VR. It is interesting, and now I'm curious how much of the game is actually incorporated into this movie. So where I want to shift to first would be the setting. I really like that we're getting this small, quaint town that has some deep-seated issues. As, you know, I'm from a kind of smaller city where things like this definitely do happen, so it's kind of interesting to see play out on the screen. Now, greed is showing and how it can tear apart people thanks to Parker. We have two sides of this argument here, though. Janine doesn't want to sell, as she knows nothing different from the life that she has here at the inn. Dr. Ellis is against the pipeline due to nature purposes. There is also Joaquim and Devin, who are already rich, and this is pitting them against Marcus, Gwen, Pete, and Trisha, who could all really use the money for different reasons. Now, like, the one, you know, kind of rough couple, they want to get out of here, and Trisha actually wants to start her own craft store and everything like that, but she needs the money to start it. Now, I can see both sides of this argument, and I have to admit, it'd be a tough choice. I'm against oil companies destroying nature, but if given the check, it is hard to decline when you have that money in hand. But this also helps with isolation with this town. They are stranded here due to the storm, and that already builds tension there. Taking it further, everyone aside from that one character ends up in the large house. This is where the movie shifts to be a murder mystery. Evidence points to something that Dr. Ellis cannot explain, and a werewolf becomes the thought. Now, this is thrown out there as a joke at first, but the more and more that we see things, it's more and more of a possibility. What I like is that not everyone just believes it, though. We get a taste of the beast must die, as well as adding in a bit of Agatha Christie here as people get picked off. And I mean, like, the book, I think it's called Ten Little Indians, where, you know, one person dies and then they try to investigate that and everything. We kind of get that playing out here. 
And that's kind of the similar thing to that Peter Cushing movie that I also referenced. And this all adds tension, as I was saying. Now, what I think works in this movie's favor is that we don't know if there's a werewolf or not until the reveal. We know the initial attack on Dave, which it does seem like an animal did it. What I find interesting is that the lore of the werewolf started, I believe, in Germany from a documentary that I watched. And it was due to them not believing that someone could brutally attack someone like happened in this town. So it had to be done by a person who shifted into a beast because you'd have to have that brains but also have that depravity. Despite evidence pointing to it, there could be a logical explanation and one that isn't necessarily a monster in the literal sense. But I'll also be honest, I didn't figure out who was behind all of this until the reveal. You also kind of get sucked into the story, at least that's what happened for me, where I just went along for the ride. And then something else I want to incorporate back in is the fact that a lot of the things with you know greed and the people not liking each other comes back into play as tensions boil over for the characters and the stress mounts. And the last part of the story that I want to go into would be the comedy. That is really the first genre here. This isn't to say that there aren't horror elements or that they aren't well done. Cicely steals the show, though, for me here. Her, along with some of the other characters, I think, handle the, you know, woke-type jokes extremely well. It is the point where I think they're poking fun at them while also being respectful. Now, they're also poking fun at the other side of the spectrum as well. And I will say that the comedy in this movie worked for me, and Jamie afterwards said it felt like a lot like Knives Out if that movie went more into horror. And I agree there. Then to move away from the story now, just to the acting, would be the next part. Richardson does well as Finn. I really like the beginning where he's indecisive, and that is the cause of his last relationship falling apart. It does take command here, and we see the real character growth to where he ends up, which you kind of need for you know, your hero. My favorite part of this movie, though, would be Ventrub. Once again, her delivery of jokes is on point. She's also quite attractive, which doesn't hurt. It is interesting, though, is that most of this movie, she's wearing a bulky mail carrier outfit, and there's really only one sequence where she isn't, which I think is kind of good to show that she is actually quite attractive. But we're not, you know, focusing on that. Aside from that, I think the rest of the characters are distinct, and each adds their own level of comedy that work together. This movie, though, legit had me laughing out loud, and I'm kind of glad, to be honest, that I saw it with a crowd, because I think that definitely helped. Then I should go next to the effects. This movie is a bit light in this category, but it also isn't that type of movie. There is some blood in some scenes where characters are killed. They all look good, and I'm assuming that we have a mix of practical and CGI, which it was fine. What we really get at the climax, though, was solid, and I also want to give credit here to the cinematography. The movie is well shot to hide things with camera angles. I think the framing is also well done in this aspect. So the last thing I'd go over would be the soundtrack. I really enjoy what they do with the 90s music being played at the bar while Finn and Cicely are hanging out. That does come back later, which I also enjoyed. Aside from that, I'd say the rest of the soundtrack fit for what was needed and the sound design worked as well. So before I kind of get into my final thoughts here, just kind of looking through some of the trivia, if I wanted to share anything, as it, the only thing that's kind of interesting is that principal photography began in February 2020, just a month before the pandemic hit. And the rest of the stuff is just kind of people joining the cast and then just some other things I've already shared. So in conclusion here, this is a fun horror comedy movie. I do mean in that order as well. I think the concept is interesting and how the story plays out worked for me. The acting really helps to drive this movie and the effects that go with it work as well. I also think that the setting adds to the tension, especially when stress mounts and the characters start to panic. I would also say the soundtrack and sound design of this movie worked in its favor. This is just a good movie to me. One that I would recommend to horror and non-horror fans alike. So my rating here for Werewolves Within is going to be an 8 out of 10. 
Now, a lot of people haven't seen or even heard of this movie yet, so I'm not going to do a spoiler section as I don't really think it necessarily needs it even if some more people had seen it, as it would be me kind of just diving a bit more into some things that I don't necessarily think I need to do for, you know, to get my thoughts across. So what I'm going to do is I couldn't find a trailer for my 1941 film, so I do have a bit of music that you would assume would be associated with a trailer, but I'm going to play that for you real quick before we get into that second featured review. For my second featured review on this episode is going to be The Monster and the Girl. This is directed by Stuart Heisler. This was written by Stuart Anthony. It stars Ellen Drew, Robert Page, and Paul Lucas. This also features Joseph Kalia, Onslow Stevens, George Zuko, Rod Cameron, Philip Terry, Mark Lawrence, Gerald Moore, Tom Duggan, Willard Robertson, Minor Watson, George Meter. Cliff Edwards, Skipper the Dog, Loden Adams, and Eric Elding. This is a crime drama horror thriller film that is from the United States. It is currently sitting on a 6.1 on IMDb and a 2.9 on Letterboxd, with the synopsis being after a young woman is coerced into prostitution and her brother framed for murder by an organized crime syndicate, retribution in the form of an ape visits the mobsters so this is another movie that i'd never heard of until i was working my way through the list of horror films released in 1941 on letterboxd i had to do a bit of searching for this one and i ended up finding a cheap physical copy online that came faster than i was expecting so i was able to you know watch it and get it recorded here now i'll admit i read the synopsis before watching this one to figure out what type of movie to pair up with it here for odyssey through the ones with a 2021 release now, I haven't watched the other one as of yet, you know, kind of peeking behind the curtain there, but I think the two that I have paired up here will be a decent enough type thing. But before I jump into the movie itself, I want to do a little bit of featured notes here. The director of Heisler was in charge of 24 films. Of them, I've only seen this one, and it is the only horror film that he did, and this is going to be kind of a recurring theme here. It did look like he may have done a lot of, like, war movies and as well as noir movies from looking at the posters mostly from Letterboxd. Now, our writer of Anthony has 32 credits. Much like the director, this is the only one that he has written that I have seen, and the only horror film on top of that. Then our star here of Drew was in 54 films. I've only ever seen her in this movie. This was the first horror film that she did, and then a few years later, she was in a Karloff movie that I haven't seen as of yet called Isle of the Dead. Then next, I'll go on to Paige. He has 58 acting credits. Much like his co-star, only in two horror movies. I've actually seen both of them, though. This was the first, and then I've also seen him in Son of Dracula, where he was the character of Frank Stanley. 
And then the, finally, the last person I look at here will be Lucas. He was in 94 films. Three of them were horror. The first one was in 1933 with Secret of the Blue Room that I've never heard of. And the other one that he was in that I've seen is actually is The Ghost Breakers, which I've actually done a featured review here on the podcast. And then this would be the last horror film that he was in as well. So we start this movie off with Susan Webster, who was portrayed by Drew. Now she's moving through mist and is telling us that everything we're going to see here is her fault. And it seems to be like a million dollar mistake. Then we go into a courtroom. Susan enters and takes a seat. We know there is something up here as a couple of guys in the gallery acknowledge her presence. Without, you know, actually saying anything, they just kind of make gestures towards each other. On trial is Scott, who is portrayed by Terry. He is accused of murder. A bellhop of Leon Beecher Stokes, who's portrayed by Edwards, is called to the stand and he tells how he found Scott with the murder weapon by the deceased. Scott is also called as the only witness for his defense and it's kind of difficult for him though as an uphill battle as there's multiple witnesses against his word. That is when Susan speaks up in his defense. It turns out that she is his sister. Much to the dismay of J. Stanley McMasters, who is portrayed by Stevens, now, this is the prosecutor here for, you know, trying to convict him. Susan is allowed to take the stand by the judge to tell her story and how he got here. Now, Susan and Scott grew up in a small town. She saved money and had dreams of moving to the big city. Scott is supportive, but he's also worried about her. Now, she does move and has trouble finding work, and she's going through her money very quickly. At the employment office, she does meet a, the man of her dreams. Now, this man's name is Larry Reed, portrayed by Paige, or so it seems. The morning after her wedding, she wakes up in her hotel room to find that Larry is missing and she's calling out for him. Instead, though, Deacon, who is betrayed by Kalia, comes into her room. He hits her with a predicament. Larry has disappeared. The bill for the room is due, as well as the party that happened there last night. But Susan has no money. I thought the movie had her working in a cabaret. At least that's what I thought they said. But the synopsis did say she was forced into prostitution here to repay what she owes. Now, to save his sister, this brought Scott to the city looking for Larry, but instead he encounters W.S. Brule, who is portrayed by Lucas, who was the boss to Larry. Now, there isn't enough evidence here to free Scott, and he gets sentenced to death. It is in prison that the warden, by the name of Dave, who is an uncredited performance by Edward Van Sloan, brings a Dr. Perry, who is portrayed by Zuko, to Scott's cell. He is asked if he will donate his brain after his execution to an experiment that he's doing, Scott couldn't care less and agrees. A strange procedure is done that gives Scott a chance at revenge and to save his sister. Now that's where I'm going to leave my recap, and to be honest, that's about halfway through the movie. Now I tried to avoid spoilers, but I think it is obvious the moment that we meet Dr. Perry where this movie is going to go. It is an interesting idea and a take on a mad scientist film for sure. They really don't focus much on the science though, so if you're not really into sci-fi films, I think this would be more up your alley. And Dr. Perry really doesn't have that big of a role. It's just more of a catalyst for the second half of the movie to happen. Now, I'm not up on this subgenre as much as I could be of ape films, but this is what seemed to be popular of this era. Now, I originally heard about them from Jamie and Brian as they went through their Colossal Collection. And I think it might have been the first time I actually heard about this subgenre. I've been seeking out more films from the 1940s, and I've seen a handful of these that have fallen into this you know, category. It really seemed like an odd subgenre, to be honest, though. What I really like here is a different take on what we have with it. Gorillas are, of course, bigger, faster, and stronger than humans. By giving them a human brain, that allows them to reason, which would make them a great killing machine. This almost feels like a variation on Frankenstein, to be honest. 
And I also like that when the revenge killings start, it doesn't make sense. And what I mean by that is that there aren't bruises, but all the bones inside the people that are deceased's body are broken. I'm not entirely sure if this is possible, but I like the idea that they're playing with here as making you know these unexplainable murders happening. This movie, though, does have some pacing issues for me. It runs 65 minutes, but I was actually kind of bored for a good part of it. My problem really becomes that there isn't much tension. They try to build it through the courtroom aspect in the beginning, which is fine. From there, though, the events of the movie just kind of happen. I don't feel any sort of worry. Susan seems safe, and it's the gangsters in the movie that are being killed. The animal in the movie kills with ease, but for me, you know, adding five to ten minutes could have really helped here to build more. Like, we need to put Susan in peril where this ape needs to try to save her before it's too late, or, you know, or these gangsters have a way where they might be able to kill the gorilla. I think the way it plays out now, it's just kind of very, these are the events, these are how they happen, and there's no tension. Where I think I'm going to go next, though, would be the acting. Drew is fine as Susan. She is a tragic character that really wants to move to the big city for a better life, but is taken advantage of. After that happens, I feel like she's underdeveloped. I'm wondering if censorship came into play here, as it just feels like it's lacking a bit in the development, from you know where we get to that point and then from there. Then Paige, Lucas, Kellia, Lawrence, and Moore are all fine as the gangsters. I also thought Terry was fine as Scott. I did want to give some credit here to Tom Duggan and Willard... Robertson as Captain Alton and Lieutenant Strickland, along with the medical examiner. They do add some comedy. They don't go over the board with it, so it actually kind of works for me. And the last shout-out here would be to Charles Gamora as the gorilla. I was looking him up a little bit on the IMDb page that he had, and it seems like he did a lot of stuff behind the scenes, you know, with costumes and like a makeup guy. But he looked and moved great as the gorilla, which is kind of pretty impressive. And really the last thing I'd go over would be the effects and cinematography. For the former, we don't really get a lot of them. The deaths are done off screen, and I'm assuming this was probably part of the era as well as the censorship issues. Now, I will reiterate, the gorilla costume looked realistic, and how Gamora moved makes that you know seem real as well. Aside from that, the cinematography was fine. I didn't really have any issues with how it was shot, but it doesn't necessarily stand out either. So then, really quickly, before I kind of close everything out here, this is one of over 700 Paramount productions that were filmed between 29 and 49 that were sold as the MCA Universal in 58 for television distribution. The working title here was DOA. The body count here is eight. Might be a little bit of a spoiler there, but you can kind of figure out who those are as you go. And then at the end, there's kind of just a kind of flop here where a door frame is, you know, sloppily prepared so you can tell that it's going to be broken. Not really an overly big spoiler, but just kind of something that does kind of happen there. So in conclusion here, this movie has an interesting premise to it. I am, you know, taking it as a semi-popular subgenre for the era and doing something a little bit differently than I've seen before. I would say that the acting is solid enough and the cinematography was fine. There isn't a lot in the way of effects, but they also, you know, did really well with the gorilla stuff that they did that uh, seemed realistic and that impressed me. I do have an issue with the story that could have been fleshed out a bit more. It just feels like it's a little bit lacking in tension because of that. Aside from that, I'd say the sound design and soundtrack fit for, you know, without necessarily standing out. For me, I would say this is just over average. If they could have added a bit more to the story, I think it could have deepened it than what we got and make it a little bit more enjoyable. So my rating here for The Monster and the Girl is going to be a 5.5 out of 10. Now, as you could tell, I'm not going to do a spoiler section. I don't think this really needs it. So what I am going to do, though, is get you over to a brief break before I close out the show.
I would like to welcome you back one last time here, and then just to close everything out here on episode number 87, if you'd like to get in touch with me to send me any sort of feedback or anything you want read on the show, just go ahead and send me an email at journeywithacinephile at gmail.com. If you'd like to read any of the reviews from anything on this episode or any of the past episodes, that's Reviews of the Dead, and that's horrorreview.webnode.com. If you'd like to become friends with me on Facebook, it's David Michigan Garrett Jr., Twitter, I'm Buckeye from Mish. Letterboxd, I'm David OSU. And over there, I'll be posting all of the horror and non-horror reviews on that. If you'd like to follow my Instagram page, it's DavidOSU87, where I'll have all of the you know movie posters of anything that I'm reviewing. And then, very similar to that, would be the Journey with a Cinephile Instagram, with username is Journey with a Cinephile, all one word. And then, just to make it easier on you, I'll have all of those links in the show notes. And then what I'd also ask you to do is that whatever podcatching device you listen to me on, if you go ahead and hit subscribe so you never miss a new episode, as well as if you can rate and review just so that way I can figure out what I'm doing that you don't like and what I'm doing that you do like just to make this the best show possible as well as to get out there to as many new listeners as possible. So for the next episode, it's going to be 88, which is going to be Odyssey Through the Ones number 15, where from 1941 I'm going to watch, I believe it's called The Face Behind the Mask. That was the title I couldn't think of last week. And then I'm also going to pair that up with a movie that I've been hearing a lot about from my buddy Tim over on Facebook of Come True. Don't necessarily know how well those two are going to pair up, but I definitely wanted to kind of you know watch both of those for next week. And I'm also going to try to go see in the theater The Forever Purge, since I do believe that comes out this weekend as well. Now, I don't really think there's anything else that I need to get you up to speed with. I'll continue to watch movies from the Summer Challenge series. There'll be a lot more 2013 films on there. So what I'm going to go ahead and do, though, is say that whatever you do today, I hope you're safe in doing it. Have a great time out there. This is your tour guide of David Garrett Jr., and I am signing off. It had been a wonderful evening, and what I needed now to give it the perfect ending. <laughs>